Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the podcast that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin. Unchained held a little giveaway recently for some of the swag we got or produced in 2019, and we are announcing our giveaway winners. Rob Fox won a ballet crypto wallet. Crypto Kai won the book Bitcoin Billionaires. Soham Bhatia won a ballet crypto wallet sample and an Unchained rabbit hole sticker. Ed Rod won our old school cap. Stephen Applegate won a black Unchained crypto rabbit hole shirt for his kids. Kiko won a gray Unchained crypto rabbit hole shirt and an Unchained rabbit hole sticker. David Orloff won the little Bitcoin book. And Carrie Ellen won an Unchained rabbit mug and a black Unchained logo sticker. Congrats to you all. And for the rest of you listeners, if you don't yet have any Unchained swag, check out our wares at shop.unchainedpodcast.com. Crypto.Law, a.k.a. Kelman Law, is a New York law firm run by some of the first lawyers to enter crypto in 2013 with expertise in litigation, dispute resolution, and anti-money laundering. Email them at info at kelman.law. Crypto.com. Get their app and buy crypto at true cost. Get a metal MCO Visa card with up to 5% back on all your spending. Download the Crypto.com app today. eToro is one of the largest trading platforms in the world, with over $1 trillion in trading volume on the platform per year. U.S. customers can trade the most popular crypto assets with transparent fees. Create an account today at eToro.com. That's E-T-O-R-O dot com. Today's guest is Nate Madry, Senior Research Analyst at Coinmetrics. Welcome, Nate. Hey, Laura. Thank you so much for having me. So although now we're 10 days into 2020, I thought Coinmetrics had a great post summarizing where the major crypto networks are um, as of the end of 2019. And you, I believe, were the lead uh, author on that post. I wanted to ask you kind of what were the main factors uh, by which you analyzed the networks and what were your top takeaways? Yeah, I wrote a pretty long post about just looking back at kind of the main trends of 2019 over four main categories. So valuation is the first one. Usage and adoption is the second. And then also looking at economics and then lastly, security and health. Um, So basically for each of those four categories, we looked at five or so different metrics and just looked at the trends across the year for about 18 different crypto assets. So there there were a lot of different takeaways, which I'm sure we'll dive into. But I think the biggest one that I want to start off with is just um, Bitcoin. Bitcoin outperformed over the year, even compared to most of the other major crypto assets. Um, Bitcoin was up about 90% over the year compared to Ethereum, which was actually a little bit down. Um, It was down about 5% on the year. And I think that's really interesting to note because this is one of the first years where we've really seen that sort of separation between Bitcoin and Ethereum and some of the major other major crypto assets. And when you say that, you mean by price? By price and by market cap, yeah. And so why do you think that was and what does that mean? 
Yeah, so I think a lot of it is because we were in a bear market this past year. So we've typically seen Bitcoin outperform a little bit in bear markets. People tend to consolidate and sell some of the smaller coins. Um, but I think we're also seeing some more evidence that Bitcoin is really being used as a store of value. And kind of interestingly, we, we've written a lot about this year about whether Bitcoin is or isn't a safe haven asset. And there are a lot of different opinions on that. But I think we're actually starting to see some real compelling data that people might be viewing Bitcoin as more of a safe haven asset. And we're, we're actually doing some research now to kind of look how Bitcoin is reacting to the recent events in Iran. Um, but Bitcoin has been kind of correlated with gold a lot this year, while, while Ethereum and some of the other smaller coins have not. Something also that was a kind of a little bit more nuanced look at the market cap factor or, or figure is that you looked at something called realized cap. How do you define that? And when you analyze networks based on that, what do you see? Yeah, so realized cap is a metric that we created at Coinmetrics. So basically market market cap, most people are, are aware of, but it's a pretty simple calculation to get market cap. You just take the total supply and multiply it by the current price. For realized cap, instead of multiplying by the current price, we look at the price um, at the time at which each individual coin last moved on chain. So, for example, for like Bitcoin, we'll look at each coin individually. And if, say, uh, there were a thousand Bitcoin that last move when the price of Bitcoin was $5,000, those 1,000 Bitcoin will all be priced at $5,000 instead of the current market price. Then we take the aggregate of all those, and that's how you get the realized cap. So basically, instead of just, um, instead of valuing each coin the same, it's taking into account, okay, if this coin has sat dormant for 10 years, then we're going to value it differently than all the other coins. Well, and one other thing that was interesting was then what you did was you created this other metric or you analyzed on this other metric called market value to realize value, which you called MVRV. So what is yeah. that? And then how do the different networks compare on MVRV? Yeah, so MVRV is market value to realize value. So basically, it's just um, the ratio of market cap to realize cap. Um, so I mentioned how we kind of calculate realize cap, but there are different ways you can interpret it. The way we usually describe realized cap is we think of it as kind of an aggregate cost basis for crypto investors. So basically the amount of money that people um, are paying as, as their initial investment. So if you if you look at it with that in mind, um, then the market cap is more of a um, signal of what the market is valuing it at, while the realized cap is more a signal of how much investors are actually putting into the asset. So if you look at the ratio of market cap to realized cap, MVRV, um, there are different ways to interpret it. But the way we usually look at it is whether whether investors are in profit or at a loss. So let me explain exactly what that means. So if you have um, MVRV that's above one, that means the market cap is greater than the realized cap. That means that the average investor, if they were to sell, they'd be selling at a profit because their cost basis, the amount that they invested into the cryptocurrency is lower than what the current prices are, so they can sell for a profit. If the MVRV is below one, then the average investor is likely in the red. So if they were to sell, they would be selling at a loss. So you can look at MVRV to get um, 
kind of a quick gauge of the health of the investor base of a network. If you have a high MVRV, everyone is feeling pretty good. If you have a low MVRV, then people are probably in a lot of pain. And so how do the different crypto networks compare by MVRV? So Bitcoin right now is um, above one. Bitcoin, I believe, is at about 1.3. Bitcoin's realized cap actually grew this year. It grew about 27%, while Ethereum's dropped and Ripple and um, Bitcoin Cash also dropped between 15 and 20%. So in terms of MVRB, Bitcoin uh, at the end of year was about 1.3. Ethereum was about 0.61. So again, that generally means that Bitcoin investors are in a little bit of a better spot. But an alternative kind of um, interpretation of that is it could mean that that Ethereum is a little more undervalued compared to Bitcoin and vice versa. So right now, the market is valuing Ethereum a lot lower than kind of investors are, are valuing it based on what they're putting into it. So there are different ways to interpret it. Um, but in general, I think if you if you look at the ways it's kind of trending, you can see whether investors are um, are kind of selling at a profit or or just kind of selling at or capitulating and selling more at a loss. And let's move on to stable coins. You wrote that the market cap for um, Tether on Ethereum grew by almost 3,700% over the past year to a total of nearly $2.3 billion. Meanwhile, Tether on Omni, uh, that market cap fell by nearly 39% to a total of about $1.6 billion. And I yeah. actually had previously interviewed your colleague, Jacob Frannick, about this. And yeah. at the time, we actually weren't sure why Tether on Ethereum started going so fast this past year because it's been around since 2017. So I wondered, you know, if by now you guys had any more insight into why there's so much momentum behind Tether on Ethereum and why it overtook Tether on Omni and market cap. Yeah, Tether has been a really crazy ride this year. Um, So yeah, as you mentioned, Tether on Ethereum just blew by Tether on Omni this past year to the point where Ethereum Tether is now being used much more than Omni Tether. And another kind of interesting update in that story is now Tether has also been launched on Tron and also just recently on Liquid. So now Tether's just kind of all over the place. We're actually also doing a research piece about how Tether is kind of morphing into this multi-headed Hydra that's almost going to be unstoppable and just like popping up on all these different chains. But yeah, I think as far as we could tell, a lot of the move onto Ethereum was um, was due to exchanges switching from the Omni version to the Ethereum version. The usage on the Ethereum version has also gone up. So um, it's, it's probably kind of being used more um, maybe in DeFi. But to be honest, we haven't really seen any hard evidence for that. So yeah, it's, it's mostly probably driven by the exchanges, but like I said, it's now also morphing into all these other outlets as well. All right, we're going to discuss a little bit more about stable coins and also look at usage, but first a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Are you interested in getting into the cryptocurrency markets but don't know where to start building your portfolio? eToro has the answer for you. It's called Copy Trader by eToro. 
With CopyTrader, you can automatically copy every trade of eToro's top crypto traders at the exact price in real time. No need to study up on markets or develop your own strategies. Simply sign up and copy the trader of your choice. Any profits they make, you do too, proportional to your investment. With eToro, you get access to the world's most popular cryptocurrencies with transparent trading fees, all in one easy-to-use app. Copy the smart money with eToro. Join now at eToro.com. That's E-T-O-R-O dot com. Crypto.com, have you seen the MCO Visa card? A metal card loaded with perks, up to 5% back and unlimited airport lounge access. They pay for your Spotify and Netflix too. What's not to love? Crypto.com has recently launched its exchange and crypto fundraising platform, The Syndicate. There's a 50% off Stellar listing event starting from January 15th, 2020. Sign up on the exchange now and stay tuned for more listings. Back to my conversation with Nate Madry of Coinmetrics. So we were just talking about Tether, but I believe there's also some movement among some of the other stable coins. What are you noticing elsewhere in stablecoin land? Yeah, so this has been a big year for stable coins overall. Um, Tether is still by far the most dominant stable coin in terms of market cap. But we also saw a lot of growth for Paxos. We saw a lot of growth, growth for USD coin, um, which is USDC. Also DAI, um, you know, switched over to multi-collateral DAI this year. So they saw a lot of good progress. I think USDC is an interesting one. Um, it's grown by a lot this year. A lot of that has also been driven by DeFi. Um, USDC has started been to be incorporated more in DeFi this year, mostly on Ethereum. So like Compound started incorporating USDC, which rivals DAI a little bit. But in general, we're seeing a lot more usage shift over to the uh, stable coins. And especially with the with transfer value, uh, transfer value on USDT Ethereum, the Tether version of Ethereum actually overtook the transfer value on Ethereum this year, which shows that people really are using stable coins as kind of a method of, of payment or medium of exchange, at least. And they're being transferred a lot more um, than kind of the, the layer one assets like Ethereum and Bitcoin. Interesting. That also, I feel like, hints at some change in usage. Um, But another way that you looked at usage was by looking at daily active addresses. And you saw that that actually decreased for four assets. Which of the four assets and how much and why? Yeah, so we saw um, active addresses increase for all of the assets in our um, that we looked at, except for four. The four were Ripple, Ethereum, Stellar, and Zcash. For um, Ripple, Stellar, and Zcash, active addresses all decreased about 50% over the year. Ethereum was actually relatively flat. It only decreased about 1%. But as I mentioned, all the other, all the other assets, the active addresses actually increased. And one other interesting thing about that is those four assets where the active addresses decreased all had down years in terms of market cap and price. So... I'm kind of hopefully optimistic that that means that valuation is is kind of being um, driven a little bit more by this usage, or at least is connected a little bit more. But it might, you know, who knows if it's correlation or causation. But yeah, I mean, it, it's it's basically showing that the usage of these chains is starting to be reflected at least a little bit in the valuation of the chains. <laughs> it would be nice to think that there's like a reason for some of the price movements. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you also broke out number the number of addresses with a balance of at least ten dollars. And why did you, you know, choose to 
separate out num- um, addresses, you know, with that threshold amount. And when you do that, what do you see? Yeah, so we actually have metrics at CoinMetrics for addresses with balances ranging from all, all different amounts up from $1 up to, I believe, $10 million. So there, but we specifically looked at addresses with balance of um, greater or equal to $10 because we use that as kind of a proxy for retail investors. It's a large enough amount where it's probably non-dust account. You know, if we're only looking at addresses that have any balance, a lot of those just have tiny dust balances. Um, so we make it big enough where we avoid that, but also small enough where it could be kind of an average investor. One caveat about that, though, so when we're looking at these addresses, it doesn't necessarily directly mean that that's the amount of users there are. So, for example, for Bitcoin um, uh, on the year, there were an average of about 12.2 million addresses that had a balance of at least $10. But that doesn't necessarily mean there were 12.2 million individual users. Um, since a lot of users have multiple addresses, but it, but it does serve, I think, as a proxy just for general usage of kind of more retail type investors. And um, also, you looked at transaction fees. What did transaction fees tell you about the different networks? So, transaction fees is another really interesting one um, because I, I think that transaction fees is actually one of the best metrics um, to look at when you're looking at real usage. Because transaction fees are, um, there are a lot of different things that go into it. But if, if transaction fees are going up, it basically means that the space in individual blocks on the blockchain is at a premium and people are willing to pay more and more to, to use that blockchain. Um, so, for example, you know, a, a lot, there's always a lot of discussion about are fees a good thing? Is, is are low fees a good thing? Is it better to have high fees? A lot of blockchains have kind of launched on the premise that they are a low fee blockchain. But in the end, I think fees are actually a really important indicator of the health of a blockchain. And on that note, we, we really only saw two blockchains this year that had any sort of significant fees. And those two blockchains, as you might affect are as you might expect, are Bitcoin and Ethereum. Um, so to give you an idea, looking at the total daily fees for both Bitcoin and Ethereum. Bitcoin had an average of about $426,000 worth of daily fees. Ethereum had an average of, of about $95,000 of daily fees. The next closest blockchain after that was Litecoin, which has about $1,000 worth of daily fees. This was on average <laughs> over 2019. So it's just a huge gap. Wow. Um, and Bitcoin wow. obviously is, is still, yeah, um, is still in the lead as well. Um, but yeah, I think, like I said, I think that's actually a sign of, of real usage or at least real demand for usage where the other chains are really far behind. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I feel like this is a theme for or has been a theme for quite a long time. <laughs> um, yeah. All right. So going forward into 2020, what will you be looking for? Like what trends are you watching? You know, what questions do you have? What are you you know, curious will happen? Yeah, I'm definitely going to be watching this trend. Kind of I, I mentioned at the top of the show about whether Bitcoin and Ethereum stay separated in terms of price and market cap. I think that's going to be really fascinating to watch going forward, um, especially as Ethereum kind of transitions towards Ethereum 2.0, knock on wood, hopefully it, it starts making progress this year. Um, but I think that'll be really fascinating to watch. Um, I'm also just kind of more on, on a meta level, I, I'm really interested to watch this year if we really do see some of these 
kind of crypto fundamentals starting driving more valuation and investment strategies, um, which I'm hopeful for. But I think we're starting to get it to a good place for crypto where we're starting to converge on some of these important metrics like fees and like um, fees to revenue ratio, for example, um, which we also include in the report. But I think converging on these metrics is going to be a really healthy thing for the crypto industry and um, kind of all getting on the same page about what metrics we should be paying attention to and hopefully making kind of a healthier atmosphere for investors in general. And just to go back to when you said that you would be interested to see if Bitcoin and Ethereum's market caps remain uncoupled, is that because you're saying that like previously they moved in tandem simply because like retail investors would get in and just buy anything they heard about or something like that? Is that what you mean? Or Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think in the past, you know, we've seen we've seen most cryptos move in tandem Um but yeah, I think a lot of that is just because retail investors just kind of pile in and they either look for something that looks cheap or is new or, or kind of trendy. And it also, I think it's also important to note that it, it does change kind of depending on the market conditions. You know, in more bull markets, we see people investing in all sorts of altcoins and different different coins. In bear markets, people do kind of tend to consolidate and go more towards Bitcoin. But I think that that's part of why it'll be interesting to keep an eye on it this upcoming year, especially if we do hopefully get into a little more of a bull market to see if that starts changing. Because I think it's actually, in a way, it is a good thing if it does separate, because that's kind of a sign that investors are becoming more educated and kind of evaluating each chain individually instead of just lumping them all together. All right. Yeah. Well, I think that would be a good trend to see more education about yes, crypto. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, it's been great having you on the show. Thanks for being on Unconfirmed. Great. Thank you so much, Laura. Don't forget, next up is the news recap. Stick around for This Week in Crypto after this short break. Crypto.law is run by crypto OGs based in New York who are operating in the crypto space back in 2013 and accept crypto as payment. One of the partners, Zachary Kelman, is known for drafting a bill submitted to Congress in 2014 aimed at exempting on-chain Bitcoin transactions from U.S. regulations. The other founding partner, his brother Daniel Kelman, became well-known in the crypto law space for his work in the Mt. Gox civil rehabilitation. If you operate a fintech business, have a dispute with some person or business involving crypto or need crypto-related legal advice, email info at kelman.law, that's K-E-L-M-A-N.law, or go to the website at www.crypto.law. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this week's news recap. It was a bit of an uneventful week, so this week's recap will be short and sweet. First up, Telegram seriously distances itself from grams. Wow, someone's got the message from the SEC. Telegram published a notice that practically had Howie was here graffitied on it. The subheadings alone are pretty indicative. The first subheading, nobody can buy or sell grams yet, practically blares, our tokens are not tradable until the network is live. The second subheading, TON will be decentralized and maintained by third parties, says, we do not satisfy the fourth prong of the Howie test. And I could go on, but the rest of the subheadings hammer on that last prong. The notice then finishes... One, Telegram is under no obligation and makes no promise or commitment to ever establish a ton foundation or similar entity in the future. Two, at the time of the anticipated launch of the ton blockchain, Telegram's ton wallet application is expected to be made available solely on a standalone basis and will not be integrated with the Telegram messenger service. 
You can practically hear Kick's leaders, well, kicking themselves for not doing this. Plus, a court-ordered telegram, which is battling the SEC, to explain why it should not have to explain how it spent the $1.7 billion it raised from the token sale. Next headline, a former backed CEO now on committee overseeing CFTC. File this under, do they not care about optics? Former backed CEO Kelly Leffler, who was recently sworn in as a U.S. senator, has been appointed to the Senate Agricultural Committee. Sounds like an appropriate placement for Leffler, who grew up on a farm, except that the same committee oversees the CFTC, which is the regulator for the derivatives on her husband's exchange, ICE. In a statement, Leffler said, I will recuse myself if needed on a case-by-case basis. Next headline, the efficient market hypothesis and the Bitcoin halving. As we all enter 2020, a number of us are wondering what effect will the Bitcoin halving have this year on the price? Nick Carter explores the efficient market hypothesis as applied to the Bitcoin halving. His conclusion is priced in. He writes, quote, anyone with an interest in Bitcoin has been aware of the supply trajectory from inception. Supply was encoded in the very first implementation that Satoshi released to the world in July, (laughs) not July, in January 2009. Long schedule changes in the rate of issuance do not constitute new information. Any presumed demand side reactions to the having catalyst can also be anticipated by sophisticated funds who have a strong incentive to front run investor optimism. Next headline, CZ's 2020 New Year's letter on all the Binance things. Changpeng Zhao, or CZ, the CEO of Binance, wrote a New Year's letter that summarizes what the company was up to in 2019 and where it's going. And it's worth a read just to see the sheer number of products and services Binance is launching and to experience that sensation of seeing the future. One interesting part of the letter is when he describes how both centralized and decentralized entities use the name Binance. He writes, quote, Just because something has the name Binance in it does not mean it is operated by the centralized entity Binance.com. He then explains he doesn't view centralization and decentralization as a binary thing, but more of a spectrum, giving us examples of things that are more and then less decentralized, with Bitcoin being at one end of the spectrum, Ethereum a little less decentralized since the creator is known, and finally, Binance Chain, which is more centralized since it has not open-sourced its code and also features just a small number of validators. Next headline, Malik Dao's 2019 Year in Review. Malik Dao kicked off what ended up being a year of mini revivals in DAOs, and its end-of-year recap is a nice way to see all the developments, even if they're small in scale, in one go. Here's a selection of the highlights listed at the top. Molagdow launches on Valentine's Day at ETH Denver. In May, Metacartel created the first fork of Molag. In August, a grant for Yang Dao passed. In August, Iraqi Dao forked Molag to fund DevCon events. In September, Mariano Conti built Sellout Dao. In November, Democracy Earth announced a quadratic voting fork. And in December, Meta Cartel began the for-profit VentureDAO. Until I went to write this, I missed that it also noted that Amin Soleimani, the founder, 
came on Unchained to talk about Molokdow, and it listed that as a highlight of the past year, which is hilarious in my book. I don't know if I'd consider that an accomplishment, but I do urge everyone who missed that episode to check it out as it was a really great discussion. And I included it in the best of 2019 episode. And for other people interested in DAOs, there are also a few other episodes, such as the one with Mariano Conti and Peter Pan um, of Sellout DAO and Meta Cartel DAO. They both discuss DAOs. Um, and then the other one, oh, was the one with Glenn Weil and Santiago Siri of Democracy Earth and quadratic voting is discussed there. So I will link all of these in the show notes. Finally, fun bits. Coin to Zero delivers the perfect Nakamoto.org spoof, Buterin.org. Coin to Zero delivered again with a hilarious parody of the kerfuffle over Nakamoto.com which was or is a pro-Bitcoin website whose contributors include people working on other coins, which caused some Bitcoin maximalists to get all up in arms. Anyway, Coin Jazeera has the perfect parody, Buterin.org, with contributors including Samson Mao, Peter McCormack, Nick Zavo, Dan Held, Seyfedean Amos, Tone Vase, Jimmy Song, Willie Wu, Nick Carter, Peter Todd, Turtle Meester, Vortex, and Jack Dorsey. Some of the articles include Why a Lower Ethereum Price Increases the Security of the Network by Dan Held. Successful Flawless Governance in the, a- in the Modern Age, a Study of the Ethereum Foundation by Udi Wertheimer. Why Keynesian Economics Works Perfectly for Ethereum by Jimmy Song. How Ethereum Can Create Global Financial Inclusion with Oppressive Regimes Such as North Korea and Iran by Samson Mao. The Case for a Child King. How Things Get Done Quicker When One Person Is Totally in Charge by Nick Szabo. And lastly, DeFi, The Intellectual's Way to Gamble with Ethereum by Tor de Meester. Coin Jazeera, Don't Ever Change. Okay, that's it, folks. To learn more about Nate and Coin Metrics, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of your podcast player. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Faster Recording, Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, Josh Durham, and the team at CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening.